Thank you for listening to Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan King. Radio Never Apart is a monthly interview podcast feature, which we started at the beginning of 2020, available uh, as part of the Never Apart online magazine. Never Apart is a non-profit organization in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, with the mission of initiating social change and spiritual awareness through cultural programming. Currently, exhibitions and events at Centre Never Apart's home base in the Mile X neighborhood of Montreal are on hold, while health authorities uh, are gradually reopening services and permitting small gatherings of people. Uh, But for now, the best way to find out the current status of upcoming events and what's going to be happening at Centre Never Apart is to visit the website neverapart.com or also check out social media channels like Instagram and Twitter under the username at neverapartmtl. On the Never Apart website, there's also past exhibition recaps, the Legends series of in-person interviews with artists who have previously shown in the various gallery spaces of Never Apart. Um, There's lots of incredible content there. Uh, The focus of this season of Radio Never Apart is to talk about the lives and experiences of people who've been involved in various nightlife communities going as far back as the 1980s. I've been discussing how these individuals helped create expressive worlds that were often an outlet and a place for like-minded people to gather. This feels particularly nostalgic in the moment we are currently in, where in most places in North America at least, uh, as of the time of this recording, we aren't able to gather uh, as instructed by health authorities uh, in different parts of the world and uh, government instruction. I've been hearing from people who have listened to some of the previous episodes and they say that it makes them wish they could travel back in time and go to some of these legendary New York parties of the 80s and 90s. Well, my hope is that this desire will provide a spark of inspiration, especially for young people who haven't ever experienced the power that nightlife once had for so many of us, uh, and also to consider ways that we can build and support our local uh, creative communities once we are able to gather again. This episode is the second portion of my interview with Miss Guy because we had way too much ground to cover for one episode. Guy has been a part of so many incredible scenes in New York. Uh, we focus in this episode on the 1990s and parties like Jackie 60 and Squeezebox, which defined that decade of New York nightlife, and also talk about what Guy has been up to in more recent years. If you put effort into your look in those days, it would get you into pretty much anywhere you wanted to go. I mean, parties for huge stars at clubs that were hard to get into. And you didn't necessarily have to know the doorman. You just had to have a good look. Lauren made a really interesting point. She said, you know, like you couldn't go out and just buy your look. The look that you went out in, you'd put it together. It was like vintage. It was thrifted. You wouldn't just be like, oh, I know exactly where you bought that from and go out and buy it the next day. That wasn't how it worked. You had to really have thought put into what you were going to be serving. (laughs) For myself and Lauren and our other friends and 
nightlife acquaintances. It seemed like everybody was creative in many different ways and and certainly with our individual looks. I mean, I still, to this day, you know, like to sort of mix it up with how I dress. I mean, sometimes things are homemade or you, you fuck with them and, you know, cut them up or safety pin them back together or sew them back together or do whatever. And I've always liked that. And, and in those days, it was really a lot about that, I think. And, you know, the looks were pretty creative and and everybody sort of had their own look you could get free drinks from bartenders if you were dressed up but i felt like we had kind of missed the heyday of new york because i was so obsessed with the 70s as a kid and reading certain rock magazines that focused on the new york rock scene and maxes and cvs and all of that i think that that's a really cyclical thing that happens to like almost anybody though is that because you've been so obsessed with like a scene and you really studied it when you show up and it's not like what it just was like just one generation past you're like oh my gosh it was so much better like just just one scene ago or just one generation ago but it's because that's what you've like studied and I hear it over and over again from so many people and I realized even about myself when I got into nightlife I was like oh it used to be cooler just even a few years earlier but then you kind of pause in that and then you start to like actually make some stuff happen and then generally speaking you're you like forget ever feeling that way because you're in the thick of like actually creating what needs to happen yeah i i definitely think that now in hindsight that was really the height of the 80s and certainly the height of clubland and everything and i mean into the early 90s and then i think it, i guess it was probably in waves of like exciting times for me personally i mean because the 90s Although at the time we were having fun and it seemed like out all the time and fun times, but it didn't seem like all that much of a scene was really happening, except that there was a scene and it was big and there was so there were so many places to go and every night of the week, multiple places to go. Whereas now you're lucky if you can find like one great party a, a week, but it's more like one once a month if you're lucky. I mean, it's just... It's not like it used to be. Um, and I feel like, you know, the 90s were actually a really fun time. And I feel like they were sort of the end of that whole last, like the 70, 60s, starting in the 60s and through the 70s and 80s. You know, the 90s were that 90, late 90s scene was sort of the end of that time. Although there were some fun times, really fun times in the early 2000s. And even around 2010, there were some fun times happening. It comes and goes in waves, I suppose. I mean, I think it got more difficult after 9-11 is like my understanding anyways, for like clubs and music venues and just everything started to become like logistically more difficult. The licensing thing and just everything like it started to dwindle a little bit. And then after 2008, that was sort of another hard hitting moment. And then we were into like the 2010s where there was still sporadically things that would happen but in recent years it really feels like it's been maybe once every few months that there will be a like a really big event that everybody really dresses up and goes out for like the Mao PR parties that he'll do or like those kind of things. Nightlife changed for the worse after 9-11 and that's when the city started really cracking down and getting tough on club owners and people could stay till however long they wanted after a club closed at four like you wouldn't really let anybody in if you knew the club owners or people at the clubs you could show up somewhere at 4 15 or 4 30 and get in and have a drink or whatever and i mean that was illegal but it happened all the time everywhere as long as there were people inside we would stay open at squeeze box until almost five in the morning you know as long as there were people there i mean after 9 11 that 
that was sort of a thing of the past and clubs got really tight and would start kicking people out at like 3.30 or quarter to four, start telling people last call. You know, they, that's when people started carding. I mean, I never got carded ever in New York until uh, post 9-11. When I was, you know, 18 and 19, I could go anywhere and never get carded. After 9-11, you know, I was sort of known on the scene and had done, you know, I, I was a known DJ, had my band and whatever. And I would not only go out to see a friend's band or to see a friend DJ or, or, or to go to a DJ gig myself at a club that I had never worked at, I would get carded. And I was like, I'm working here. And I'm like, you know, at that time, I was probably like 32 or something. Way past 21. Like, <laughs> You mentioned Squeezebox. Squeezebox happened at Dawn Hills, right? If I'm not mistaken, that was like the venue where it was happening. It was in Tribeca on Greenwich and Spring. And when we started Squeezebox, everyone was saying to us, oh, no one's going to go there because that part of town was it was desolate. It certainly wasn't like it is now with like Jay-Z living down and Beyonce living down the street. The party was pretty fun right from the get go. Um, I was the DJ and I had been DJing for almost a year when we started Squeezebox. It was fun, but it wasn't making money. But there was a fun energy in the room every Friday night. Don was really cool with like giving it a good chance to really catch on. I guess he believed in the night and us and what we were doing. Michael Schmidt, a good friend of mine, who was the guy brought us all together. He was the one that like made the money off the door and whatever. And he paid me and Mr. Spermica, who was the host and MC. And he would pay all the go-go dancers and the bands. Don would help him out from the bar if he needed help. But he was worried that it wasn't going to happen because he didn't start making money right away. We all knew that there was a an, an undeniable energy in the room every Friday night. And afterwards, we'd come home. He was my neighbor. He lived in the same building. And we would talk on the phone and he would say, oh, I can't do this anymore. It's not, I'm not making any money and it's not going to happen. And we'd be like, let's do one more week and see. And each week it got better and better. And by we started in April of 94. And so by that, like midsummer, it was, you know, the spot and, packed out the door, lined down the block, and he started making money. And we all started making money. And uh, it became wildly successful. I mean, more than we ever could have imagined, actually. And it was lots of fun. It was pre-internet, really. And, um, you know, we started getting write-ups in magazines and, and other countries, and me as a DJ and the party. And so... It was really spreading. And then that's, I started getting DJ gigs out of town. And I remember going to Seattle and DJing at this party. It was like a gay rock party. The guy said, oh, you know, this is our version of Squeezebox. That's when it really dawned on me. It was just wild to think people even knew of it outside of New York, you know. The Squeezebox certainly had an effect on other scenes around the country and the world certainly in LA and London and the, the two main things in the 90s that were really the things to do were Squeezebox and Jackie 60. And Jackie 60 was quite distinctive because there was this like Jackie family and there was all the different themes it was artsy and a little bit more experimental right? Every week you know they they would have a different theme. I, God, I mean, the work they put into that is just mind-blowing. Johnny and Chi-Chi and whoever 
kid, kitty boots to the door. Whoever uh, worked there would be usually dressed for whatever the theme was that night. And they really encouraged people that were coming to the party to dress up and they would, you know, give suggestions on the invites. They could use that if they didn't want to let someone in at the, the club that didn't belong there, like a bridge and tunnel guido or something it was a very mixed crowd another reason why i loved Squeezebox so much if i wasn't the dj there i would have been going there every friday night it was a gay rock party anyone was welcome and jackie was a gay party but anyone was welcome but you just couldn't be an asshole and you had to either know someone or or work a look and same with Squeezebox. i mean it was left up to the door person curate the right crowd and and kitty boots was a master and and lauren did the door at Squeezebox for a while and both parties always had really good mixed crowds and it was very rock and and very fetishy both places jackie was more fetishy Squeezebox was more rock everyone just wanted to have fun i think that was like the sort of common thread for all of those parties um and and they were fun you know one of the first jackies i mean it must have been like the the first month and they did like a it was like a manson family theme if i remember correctly and they had me do sharon tate (laughs) so i did my best sharon tate look at the time and um had this little 60s sort of baby doll pale pink dress that glamour made there was someone that did charlie but i was killed by a girl with a knife that was one of the manson girls on stage and that was the performance i have some photos somewhere here like actual snapshots from that night but it was such a fun, ri- ridiculous night. Jackie was just ridiculous. It was always like that ridiculous. They asked me to go-go dance one night because they w- wanted my look for like whatever the theme was that night. I don't remember, but let's just say maybe it was glam rock. And I wore these really incredibly high fetishy black patent boots that I could barely stand in, you know, and I certainly couldn't dance in them. So... I was on this little stage in this one room. I was just like, I can't even stand in these shoes. Plus I was drinking and who knows what else. And someone brought me a bar stool and I sat on the bar stool, you know, all dolled up and was shimmying my shoulders. And it was just one of those things where I was like, that wasn't planned. It was just like, I I had to sit. I sat and I said, I'm go-go sitting. And it kind of worked and they loved it. And it was... Just Jackie was so funny like that. You know, everything was just spontaneous. They had like a downtown 81 theme one night or something or I don't know. But they asked me to do Debbie and lip sync Rapture. So I tried to recreate the Rapture video to the best I could. And Debbie came that night and brought me flowers. And I was just starting to get to know her. I mean, I had met her a bunch of times and she had come to see my band quite a few times at that point I don't know if we had played with Blondie yet at that point but I remember she came down to the dressing room and was all dolled up and looking gorgeous there's a photo of us from that night but and she brought me these beautiful flowers and I was so embarrassed because I was like I don't I'm I'm trying to look like you but of course I don't and um you know this is going to be kind of silly and you know I was explaining like she was just laughing because I was also really super shy around her and and still intimidated i suppose well that's totally understandable since uh this is miss debbie harry that you're talking about um so tell me what's been keeping you busy in the last few years and what are you looking forward to getting back to once things start to normalize a little bit i am looking forward to getting back to the photography that i've been doing for the past like four years now 
And um, like most things that I've done, I, I sort of just fell into it, like, because I've always been interested in photography. And so it started because I, I would do Debbie's makeup and usually take a few photos of her when I was done. And then I started sending them to her and she um, said, you know, you're really good. You have an eye. You should, you know, get serious with this. So I, I started taking it more seriously and shooting friends and doing this, you know, bubble bath series. And this year started off really good. I was shooting tons and um, kind of on a roll. And then I went out of town for a couple of weeks and came back and the world became what it is. So I do look forward to having people over and, and photographing them and getting that, you know, happening again. It's been such a joy hearing these stories. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Stop lying. <laughs> <laughs> and we will continue these conversations, but yes, just not I hope so. recorded. Call me anytime. I hope you enjoyed listening to the second portion of my interview with Miss Guy, Guy Furrow. A project that Guy undertook once we were all asked to quarantine was a virtual portrait series, which I had the pleasure of being photographed for. The series has been posted to his Instagram at MissGuyNYC. So definitely go and check it out. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Radio Never Apart. Some exciting news is that we are now available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So you can subscribe, write a nice review. Uh, we also love to hear feedback and welcome suggestions for future features and interviews. Please reach out with the word podcast in the subject line to info at neverapart.com. You can also find me, your host, Jordan King, on Instagram at Jordan King Archive. Check back next month. I did an interview with Chichi Valenti, one of the founders of the legendary New York Party, Jackie 60, which I talked about in this episode with Miss Guy. Um, Chichi and I had an incredible conversation, so I really look forward to sharing that with you. Until then, this is your host, Jordan King, signing off.